Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. This is outlining fiqh, the second major part of outlining fiqh, which is business transactions. The page that we are study that we are starting from today, in a summary of Islamic juris- jurisprudence, is page thirty-six, and that would be chapter three, conditions of trade transactions. Okay. But I'll start. Okay. I'll start off with the with the general summary poem of business tra- of business transactions. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. At business transactions, write capital risk in the fiqh of a slave as he trades to exist. The fiqh of finance is a loftier term for the money we struggle and borrow to earn. Contracts and sharing, if profits are made, and the techniques to use in the practice of trade. Now, buying is bayer in a general sense, but it's contracts and deals that make businessmen tense. No shuddy cats or partnerships that we can use in seeking risk. And if someone won't pay their debts, then hajj is what we implement. The is of borrowed source while gossip is to take by force. By its agreement, slaves are freed and will get blessings for good deeds. Al-Kaf are called the public gifts, endowments, and or scholarships. Wasaya are the wills we leave, the ones we love, our legacies. Farah, it makes inheritance, the last show of beneficence. So those with talkless seek to deal and only con men seek to steal. Okay, so now that's the general, that's the general chapter here. Okay, and that gives us, for everybody who doesn't know, that names for us the major chapters under the fourth heading, the four headings, and this is the second one, which is business, business laws. But that doesn't tell you, okay, about the specific subject, which is Al-Bay. Now do that second level. Go ahead, please. Now, this is this. Yes, we're in the first sub. The first subtopic of business transactions is el bayr, which is trade. El bayr means to buy and sell, and business transactions have rules as well. Ten specifics are defined. Conditions we must bear in mind: options, interest, roots, and fruit. Bad transactions don't compute. Advanced payments we pawn and make. Collateral debt with loans we take. Our words, our bonds, are we're bound to keep. A debt transfer when ends don't meet. Patents, copy, residual rights, all help merchants sleep at night. Okay, so now in this chapter, you, you're seeing there's 10 issues that we are studying under the specific chapter of al <clears throat> As a singular term, the word al rec- is is recognized as business. That would be the general word for it. Business is to sell something. It's not a business until you make a sale. Now it's a business. Otherwise, it's just an idea, okay? So there's 10 conditions, okay, 10 types of thoughts that you have to come through. The first one is the shurut of the bear, the conditions. The second one is khiyab. These are choices there, right? Babur riba. what is riba and how does it stand with business? The fourth one is babul bay'ul usulu wal thimar, which is roots and fruit. Babul salam. Passing over something, paying advance payments. Okay? Loans. Al-Rahm, putting something on pawn. Al-Bimana, someone insuring your, 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 your debt or insuring your product. Okay? And then Al-Hawala, a debt transfer. Okay? And Al-Surh, this is sit down and you guys make, and someone makes some type of 
agreement, mending, mediation. These are the 10 things that happen surrounding and involving oneself in business. Go ahead and read the chapter we'll follow. Go ahead, please. One third of those conditions of trade transactions. Chapter 3. Bismillah. Now, Bismillah rahim Conditions of trade transactions. Recurrent are the conditions set by a seller or a buyer when concluding a trade transaction. Accordingly, it has become a necessity to study and tackle the different kinds of such conditions, pointing out the legal and the illegal ones among them. The faqis, may Allah have mercy on them, define the condition of a trade transaction as follows. It is obligating one of the two parties of the sale by the other for the benefit of the latter. Let me stop you for a second. Let me start. I'm sorry. I should have uh, jumped in there when he said the faqis. This is not a word. The word is fuqaha. Fuqaha. These are the, 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 the plural of faqih. A faqih is a scholar of fiqh. Fuqaha are the, is the plural. The scholars of fiqh. So just so everybody's clear on what he's talking about. The fuqaha, the scholars of fiqh, give me a lot of mercy, defined a condition of a trade transaction as follows. It is obligating one of the two parties of the sale by the other for the benefit of the latter. Okay? Meaning the one who made the obligation. So this condition has to be agreed upon. And the person that puts the condition, he's the one that wants to benefit from that condition. Okay? According to... Uh, go ahead, please. Continue, Okay. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Continue. All right. According to the Fukaha, a transactional condition is invalid unless it is made at the time of the transaction and embedded in the transactional contract. In other words, a condition is invalid if it's made before or after concluding the contract. And people need to understand this. Hold on now, please. Listen to what he said. If made before or after concluding the contract. What does it mean by before? We understand after. But why not before? <coughs> You'll find this type of before things a lot in the Eastern world. You'll jump into a cab ride, for example, and they say, oh, you, oh, just give me 15. And you say, no, no, 10. Okay, 15, let's go. No, I didn't agree to that. I didn't agree. Okay? So sometimes when people are trying to make a, a deal, they'll say something as though it's accepted. And it's not accepted till we get to the point where the contracting takes place, the negotiations are being made at that time. And so that's when the condition becomes valid or not valid. Continue, please. Now, in general, the conditions in trade transactions are divided into valid conditions and invalid ones. First, valid conditions. Valid conditions are those that do not contradict the objective of the contract. Such a kind of condition obligates its fulfillment. The Prophet ﷺ said what translated means, Muslims must keep to the conditions that they make. 
Such conditions obligate fulfillment also because all conditions in trade transactions are originally legal, except for those invalidated and prohibited by the lawgiver. The valid conditions are of two kinds. Number one, the first kind of valid conditions of trade transactions is that which ensures and consolidates the contract and benefits the one who sets such conditions. Examples of such valid conditions are those made by the seller, such as stipulating taking a security deposit or stipulating surety. This surety makes the seller this surely makes the seller free from worry. There are similar valid conditions in favor of the buyer, such as stipulating delaying the payment or part of it for a specified term, i.e., to pay it at a specific date. So long as the buyer is committed to this condition, the sale is valid. A buyer may set a condition concerning a specification of the commodity, such as requiring a special brand or product, as people have different preferences. In such a case, the sale is legally valid as long as the commodity meets this condition. Otherwise, the buyer has the right to cancel the contract or at least get a compensation for the missing stipulated quality. This compensation is estimated by comparing the value of the commodity meeting the required condition and the ones lacking it. And then the difference between the two values can be paid to the buyer if he asks for that. Okay, pause. Does everybody understand the language here? Are there any questions? If there's no questions, I'm just going to give an example. Let's say I want to sell a shirt a type a cotton shirt, and that cotton shirt says Muhajir on it, and it's from a particular brand. It's from Tyler Boyd brand. When I stipulate that I want the Muhajir t-shirt from Tyler Boyd brand, and I'm willing to pay 10 dinar for that shirt, per shirt, then I receive from the seller a shirt that does not say Muhajir. It says Hajji. And it's from a Yubi brand. Now the Hajji brand it sells on the market for 15 dinar. But the Tyler Boyd brand sells on the market for 17 dinar. So I'm going to lose on just a regular general two dinar per sale if I accept this brand from this, this inferior brand of shirt. Maybe the quality of the cotton is the same, but because the people buy the name, the name brand, what the shirt says, now I'm due to a break on the price by two dinar. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, makes sense. Continue. Number two, the second kind of valid transactional conditions is the one in which one of the two parties stipulates benefiting lawfully from the commodity 
in a certain way. For example, a seller of a house may stipulate staying therein for a specific period, or a seller of a riding animal or a car may stipulate riding it to a certain place. Jabir radiallahu anhu narrated, as may, tra- as may mean, the Prophet sold a camel and stipulated to ride it and use it until he reaches Medina. This has been compiled by al-Bukhari and Muslim. This hadith states the permissibility of selling an animal and stipulating riding it to a certain place. The same goes for similar transactional cases. Another example is when the buyer stipulates a specific work to be done to the commodity, such as buying firewood, stipulating that the seller should deliver it, or buying cloth, making a condition that the seller should stitch it. Is there any question about this? Okay, continue. Second, invalid conditions. There are two kinds of invalid conditions. Number one, the first kind is the invalid illegal condition that basically nullifies the selling contract, such as when one of the two parties stipulates another contract within the the main one. For example, it is an illegal condition when a seller of a commodity makes a condition that the buyer must make him his partner in his business, lend him a sum of money, or allow him to share his house, etc., or that he says, I sell you this commodity on the condition that you rent me your home. Such a condition is legally invalid, so it nullifies the original contract. This is because the Prophet وسلم, forbade concluding a selling contract based on another conditional contract. This prophetic prohibition was interpreted by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal radiallahu anhu exactly as we have pointed out above. Okay, so there's a rule here. The rule is a warrior scholar does not mix issues. Okay? You do not mix issues. So here you find the Prophet ﷺ showing this even in a contract. If you want to, let's say, use the conditions they said here, buy these books from me, you must let me become your partner in your business when you sell the books. No, I don't have to make you a partner in my business. Tell me how much you will charge me for selling me the books. Well, I'll give you this price and that. No, no. I want to know the price I'm going to get to own the books. And then what I do with them is my business, not your business. If you want to become a partner with me in my business, we can talk about that after we conclude this contract. But what it's using is one perhaps another contract to put weight on another contract. And this could be intimidation. This could be a type of coercion. So, alhamdulillah, to remain free and to allow ourselves the freedom and dignity in business, Allah's Messenger, sallallahu guided us not to mix these issues. Even in marriage. And now to marry 
I'll marry you my sister on the condition that you marry me your sister. This is not allowed in Islam. This type of marriage is haram. So we see this is all across the board. We have to be very careful about mixing issues in order to maintain our dignity and our freedom. Father, continue please. Naam, Sheikh. What about the action of the father-in-law of Musa, when he said, I'll marry, I'll marry to you my daughter on the condition that you work for me for a number of years? Okay, so this is a mahar, and even if we say this is the same thing, okay, because somebody can say, hey, the mahar is to give me a thousand camels, or the mahar is to work for me for ten years, and then I'll marry you. You know, this is a mahar is a payment for the woman. It's not an, after the marriage goes on, there's no continuation of the business. In the situation we see here is a contract that is, you know, now you're still in business with this and he's this other book. But let's say it's the same thing. Even if we say, okay, it's the same thing. The sharia of the past, if it contradicts with the sharia of the present, we don't follow that sharia of the past. Does that make sense? No, I'm sure. Okay. So if a person requests, if a father requests that you pay him a certain amount of money for his daughter, he's allowed to do that. Even if you think it's expensive, you don't have to pay it. But if he says, okay, you, you can marry my daughter on the condition that you, stay, that you stay in business with me, okay, or that you work in my company, and this condition is ongoing, then it's not, it's not fair because it's not allowed. Because now what happens if you quit? You can't quit because you're married to my daughter. Or if you quit, now you have to turn my daughter back to you. No, that condition is not valid. Okay? But if a man said, work for me for the summer, you know, and I'll take the and with no rate for no wages, but your wages will be when you finish the work, you know, for me. You will now I will marry you to my daughter. I don't see that as the same thing. I see that the wages would be the maha. As long as he doesn't continue working on condition that he stays married to the daughter. And in fact, we do see conditions like this in amongst the Jewish people in New York when I grew up. They would make contracts to marry their daughters to a person who, on condition that that person would be their business partner. And in order to safeguard the business, the son-in-law would make a condition that if you force me to divorce her, I get, let's say, 40% of your business. But if I divorce her, there's no um, harm on me, and I just, you know, I maintain whatever percentage of the business he gets by marrying. Because sometimes they would marry the daughter, you get 10% of my business, if you marry my daughter. If I force you to divorce her, then you get 40%. If you divorce her, you just maintain your 10%. And so you would find, and this is what I saw growing up, the guys, would, the son-in-law would beat up the daughter, beat the daughter up, treat her really bad, send her home to her father so he could see what he did to her. To, to, on the hopes that the father would get so mad that he would request his daughter back, take his daughter back out of the marriage. 
so that the son-in-law would get 10%, I mean, sorry, 40% of his business in this, in this regard. And it was a very, very criminal thing. So, alhamdulillah, I mean, we see the, what can happen when they mix those types of issues in a marriage. And alhamdulillah, Allah's lesson just saved us from those types of things. Continue. Naam. I'm looking for my place. Okay. Even now, you see here. The second half of an invalid condition. Like you were saying? I was saying that even now, here, I know of a condition in Medina where a man married a woman from Bani Mahzul, the same tribe as. Khalid ibn Walid. And because he was a foreigner, a non-Arab, they were afraid he would marry their daughter and divorce. So they said, if you divorce our daughter, you have to pay, uh, let's say, 20 or 30,000 riyal. If you just divorce her. Okay? But if we request her back, then there's nothing upon you. So now, a couple of months ago, these two got into some marital discourse, and they had been married for, you know, let's say about 10 years. And the woman wants to get divorced. So she went to her family, and she said, I'm going to stay here. Okay? And they said, no, we, are, uh, we, don't, we don't want you to stay here, because if you stay here, it's going to be understood that we're taking you back. And if we take you back, we lose out. But if he divorces you, then, uh, what do you call it, uh, what do you call it, we, he will have to pay us. So she agreed with them, but she said, if I stay here, he'll get mad and divorce me. So they allowed her to stay. But they requested that the husband send them money to take care of the, the, the lady, their, their daughter. The husband refused. He said, I'm not going to send anything. You guys provide for her. Now, if you learn the stories of Jahliya, when we read the seerah, we see that the, the, the Arabs of old, they were very stingy with regards to spending money on their daughters. They are still the very same people, and that's why those stories are important to us. They did not like to spend money on their daughters. They were very careful about their money. So for this reason, you find that they did not want to keep her there without someone else spending for her dinner and lunch, even though that's their sister and their daughter. And when the husband decided he's not going to spend on her, he did that because he knew they would get tired of her, tired of her complaining and asking and wanting things. And so eventually they demanded that she go back and that he only thing he had to do, because he said, I'm not going to come get her. You send her back and I'm not going to divorce her. So finally, they requested you just come and pick her up and we'll make sure she gets in the vehicle with you, which he did. He came with some two people. He had to go with his two witnesses from his side to show what would happen if it had to go to court. And they drove over there. They made the, the, the girl come out and get in the car and he took her back home. OK. And then so you have to understand the people and the Sharia's of old and the habits of the people that you're dealing with and why the Prophet told us about the Arabs so that you can see their habits in practice today. Even today, when we look at this, the Arab world tell us 
part, what does the seerah teach us? That the Arabs were very petty with one another. And for any reason, they would go to war with one another, war with one another's tribes. And this is why they had no unity. And this is why the Jews and the Iranians at the time, who were maniacs, there was a famous religion called from a man called Mani. It's where we get the word maniac from. And he ruled in Persia with his religion. And so it was so obsessive, this deen, but they had so much influence on the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula, just like today. Bahrain, Qatar, Yemen, they have great influence by Iran. And the western side of the Arabian Peninsula, Iraq and Saudi and Jordan, were greatly influenced by the Byzantine, the Roman, which is the British and the Americans of today. And it's still the case. And the Arab tribes were what? Very separatist with one another, as you see them today. They do not support each other. Look how they are. None of them are helping the Palestinians. In fact, they are helping the Europeans against them. And not even helping or speaking halfway to each other. They even ban each other's TV programs from each other. And that way they are so hateful towards one another. So you have to take into consideration why we study the Sirah. So we can understand the circumstances of today when we are doing business and interacting with these particular people. And understand how they do business and what business transactions and conditions are in them so we don't fall into these things, even though it may still be the practice of some of the people today. Please continue. Now, number two, the second type of invalid transactional conditions is the one which itself is null and void, yet it does not nullify the contract. For example, a buyer of a commodity may make a condition that he will give it back if he undergoes loss, or a seller of a commodity may make a condition that the buyer must not resell it. Such a type of condition is legally invalid, as it violates the principle of a business contract that absolutely allows the buyer to use the purchased commodity in whatever manner he likes. The Prophet said, what translated means. If anyone imposes a condition which is not in the book of Allah, then that condition is invalid even if he imposes 100 conditions. And this has been compiled by Al-Bukhari and Muslim. The phrase in the book of Allah in the aforementioned hadith refers to Sharia, Islamic law, including the Quran and the Sunnah. Still, such an invalid type of condition does not nullify the contract. To illustrate, in the well-known incident of Barira, the one who sold her made a condition that her wala would go to him if, he, if she was emancipated. However, the Prophet ﷺ declared that the condition was null. Yet he وسلم, did, not con- did not consider the contract to be invalid. Then the Prophet ﷺ said what translated means. Verily the wala is for the emancipator. A Muslim involved okay, in this. Before you go on, let me, let, me cla- let me clarify a few things here, okay? Going back 
<clears throat> the second type of invalid transactional condition are the ones or conditions are the ones that in and itself are null and void. Okay. For example, they're null and void because they impose conditions that the buyer must adhere to after he has bought the item. And the main condition of buying is that when I buy it, it is mine. And the buyer can do whatever he wants to with that product. Nowadays, most of the business contracts that are made when buying products are invalid conditions. Because they tell you, you will have to use this product in this way. You do, you cannot use it in that way. You cannot let someone else hold it. This is that. You cannot, you have to use this type. Of, even we say, for example, a coffee maker. You cannot use any other type of coffee except our coffee in this coffee maker. No, it's my coffee maker. I want to use what I want to use. And if we, you cannot use the ink cartridge except the ink cartridge that we want you to use. This type of contract forces you to be enslaved seller at any time. And now they are putting technology in these vehicles and in these, these products that make them stop or break if you do not use their products or adhere to the conditions they have set. And people did not know that they had done this until they tried to invalidate the condition by going on and how people are starting to find out they can reprogram these machines in order to work with them properly. And now most of the sellers or manufacturers are only and exclusively making products that are controlled by them after they sell them. And until people refuse to buy these products, they won't stop. Until people find the necessity to make their own products or to do without these products to maintain their dignity, this will only increase and continue to increase. Until, like they said, you will own nothing and be happy. And so people have to understand that the Sharia is designed to allow you the dignity of your humanity and in within your humanity, freedom, human freedom. Now, in this example that he gives, and I'm oh, sorry, and to violate these conditions is your right. And that is what me is meant by the hadith, which could be understood the way they, they mentioned it here. Any conditions, any conditions that are not in the book of Allah, in the book of Allah meaning the, the Sharia. And the book of Allah means the Qur'an and the Sunnah, the authentic Sunnah. Even if he imposes a hundred conditions, it's not limited to a hundred, it can be a thousand conditions. They are invalid if they oppose the Sharia of Allah, meaning the freedom of humanity and, and dignity of people. Now, in the example he gives, illustration, he says the well-known incident of Bahira. Bahira was a slave woman. And she used to go to Aisha. A lot of the women would go to Aisha or any of the other wives of the Prophet to learn things in the Bible from the Baraka. So Bahira was a slave 
of African descent. And her people, her owners, they made a deal with her. It was called wala, meaning that they would allow her to work. And some of the money that she would work for, she would be able to keep for herself and use it to buy her freedom. Because in slavery, a part of slavery a lot of Westerners don't understand is that someone could be a slave, but not work directly for the family that they are enslaved to. And so what these people would do, they would capture someone or they would buy the person at the slave market. And then they would send them to go work at a, a particular place or some skilled factory or some or a servant for someone else. And all the money that person would make would go back to the slave owner or his family, whoever he designated to receive that money. In a lot of instances, some of the money was allowed to stay with the slave himself because that money that person, that slave, would use to live with invention because slavery has not ended. They taken the word slavery out of it. But the actual is still in place today. So they would request from this person, let's say, for example, you have to give us, let's say, 30 or let's say like $3,000 every month. And with that, if you make any more than that, you can keep it for yourself. And so this person, the slave, would run out there and hustle, work night and day, sleep very little to kind of, to make up this 3000 and to make more than the 3000 so they could live and make more than what they needed to live so they could save. And sometimes you'd see some very well-dressed, well-property slaves. Okay. Then they would go to their slave owners and say to them, can I have a condition of voila? And that means, can I give myself my freedom? And they say, okay, if you give us $300,000, okay, within the next two years, you're free. You can give us half a million dollars or a quarter of a million dollars. You're free. And so the slave would say, all right, they would sometimes help each other. Some slaves would help each other. Like, and sometimes rich people would help them. As we see with uh, Salman and Pharisee. And like we see with Barira also. So Barira wanted to get the money to buy her freedom, the remaining money to buy her freedom. So she went to Aisha, radiyallahu anha, whom she was friendly with. And said, would you please give me the remaining money I need to buy my freedom? And Aisha said, yes, as long as I am your wali. What does that mean? That means, and this was the practice of people, whoever paid and helped the, free, the slave person get their freedom, they were now considered their relative. What does that mean? Their inheriting relative. So that when they die, they would also get a share of inheritance from this person. Okay? They would get a share of inheritance 
from the freed slave, along with whatever relatives they had. Now, <clears throat> a lot of times, the family that was the slave, the original slave, the slave's original owner, they wanted to maintain this right even after freeing the slave. So they said, look, you buy your freedom, but your last fields remain with us. See this condition? You're still a slave enslaved to us. Right? But no, if I'm free, I'm not enslaved to you. I do not condition you. But that's what they said. So Aisha paid the money. And when she gave the money, when Barira gave the money to the family, they said, okay, you're free, but remember, your wala belongs to us. And so Aisha complained to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he didn't say anything at first. Of course, because he wants the girl to get her freedom. But then after the contract was finished, after Barira paid the people, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is reported to have gone out of his house and walked to the masjid, got on the mimbar, and, after, and on the mimbar he's talking to everybody who came. Maybe it's a khutbah, maybe it's after the khutbah, or maybe it's after the salah. And he gets on the mimbar and he said, what's wrong with a people who make conditions that oppose the book of Allah and the sunnah of the messenger of Allah? Innama, the fact of the matter is, the wala is only for the one who emancipates the slave. Meaning the one who pays to free this person. That's one of his worldly rewards. To come up with all that money to free a person, you get the reward of now you're his relative. And you deserve that because you, you freed him. Not the person that was stingy and didn't, and, and, and demanded you pay me. No, if you wanted that well that, you then you would have freed him from your own goodwill then. So this was to support that particular incident. And I hope that what I've said has made this clear. Now I said that slavery still exists today. Let's take the situation that happens here in Saudi Arabia a lot of times. Well, in all cases, when a person comes to work in this country, he has to have a wakil. The wakil is the person that takes that person's passport. He hands his passport over to the other person. His house is under his name. His money is in a bank account that is has that can be frozen on request of the uh, the the wali, not the wali, the wakil. He has, he sees what's in the guy's bank account just like he does. It's an app. Whatever he puts in, whatever he takes out. It's an app. Okay? When the person makes money, the wakil sometimes gets jealous. He says, look, I'm the one that sponsored you. Look how much money you made. You have to give me some of that money. If the person says no, he says, look, man, I'm... You know, I got your passport. You can't leave the country without giving me some whatever money I want. You made that money only because I was the wali, I was the wakil for you. You have to give me a percentage. On top of the percentage that he's receiving already for being the wakil. And if not, he just says, 
shut his, close his account. And says, look, I, he owes me money. He has to give me money. I was his wakil, and he can say anything, and it's believed. Or we see, like when we look at the situation of the girl who's the house servant, and the owner of the house rapes her, or takes her chastity without her permission, which is race, rape. Philosophy he may not beat her up in the Western way of rape, but he rapes her nonetheless. She has no voice in the issue. And if she complains, he, the complaint goes nowhere. And if he wants, even after a complaint, he can have her deported or put in jail until she drops her complaint. Or he can throw away her passport and says, I don't know this lady. She doesn't have any paperwork because he holds the paperwork. Okay? So you have to understand slavery still exists in the world. And even in the United States, slavery exists in the form of prison and uh, what do they call it? Parole and probation. They do the same thing. They release the prisoner. And they say, you owe me a certain amount of money or percentage of your wages for the next two, three years. If the person doesn't pay, they put him back in prison. Okay? And or they give him a big fine and he has to pay it off. And that's why people who get out of prison are so indebted, but they don't know that they can go to the masjid and ask for zakat to, to, to take off these debts. And the Muslims are ignorant of the condition of their Muslim brothers. And think that these guys are just begging, not realizing that they have been given these heavy fines to pay uh, as slaves are given in order to keep them oppressed. So we need to learn about the Sharia and how it is played out or you know, played out in modern times so that we can become better Muslims and not fall into these things and also help those who are being oppressed by these circumstances. If there are any questions, I'll take them, and then you can finish reciting if there's no questions. Nah, Sheikh, back to our discussion about the the first kind of invalid illegal condition, which is this, which is the sale within the sale, or the contract within a contract. Before you do that, could you finish reading the rest of this chapter, this particular condition, because you weren't finished? Yes, yes, I can. Okay, continuing on. A Muslim involved in businesses purchasing and selling should learn the legal rulings on trade transactions as well as the valid and invalid conditions of any business deal to be aware of the legal situations in such dealings. Thus, Muslims can find legal solutions to their controversies resulting from trade transactions, most of which result from the ignorance of the seller, the buyer, or both of such rulings, as well as the invalid conditions they set in transactions. Alhamdulillah, his speech is very, very important. Very important for us to understand. Now, please go ahead. What was your question or what was your statement? My question is, are there, are there contracts in the, in the category of Islamic finance, for example, financing a home that, that commit this contract within a contract? No, not that I have read. And I was involved in the sit-downs that led to Islamic banking 20 years ago. When we would meet in England and discuss opening up Muslim-run financing, you know, home financing and things like that. However, because the Muslims are in such a 
pickle, so to speak. We're in a conundrum. A conundrum is a knot within a knot, in my definition. The response of the or the the, the application of Islamic financing does not solve the riba issue. And that's because we have not established a true Islamic Beitul Mah banking system. So we're trying to establish an Islamic finance in the midst of a Kafir banking system. So every one of the, even the Muslim countries' banks are pretty much owned by Jews or Western banks. I'll give you, an, for example, the, the Bank of Mauritania is owned by the Bank of Chicago. So let's say me and my naivety say I'm going to go to an Islamic bank because it's the Islamic Republic of Mauritania. And I'm going to put my money in the Islamic bank. I'm really just putting my money in a subsidiary of the Bank of Chicago. I'll get better ranks, rates from the Bank of Chicago. When you see how these contracts are laid out from these Muslim finances and the Muslims have good intentions, but good intentions alone do not make good activities. So the Muslim says, I'm going to do Muslim financing and finance this home. The rates that they charge are worse than the rates of riba. Are worse than the riba the person would be selling. To the point where I would say they are mudarrun. They are forced not to do those contracts. Because they are debilitating. Okay? And the things that we are told to preserve, Islam has come to preserve and protect, prioritize, and in always respect. And so these contracts are disrespectful, undignified, and drag the Muslim. Even if it's from the Muslim finances. And so one of the ways they do it, we both own the home. You only own the percentage of the home that you pay for. And since we both own the home and I own the higher percentage of the home, you still have to pay me rent. So I'm paying you rent and anything above the rent that I pay you goes for the purchase of the home. So now I'm keeping on paying this rent. I'm keeping on paying this rent. And little by little, I'm gaining, you know, ownership of the home. It sounds good. But when you start to practice this, you realize that you can buy the house cheaper if you did the rib alone and then did an external finance because the way the American system is set up on that, you really don't have to pay, pay it back because the, the, the system already gives you this credit. All you have to do is argue it in court and it's paid off right off the right off the bat. But people are ignorant of not only the Islamic business rules, but the, the, the Kafir business system. And they are only listening to the advertisement. And the advertiser is not explaining to you what the, how the business is run. He's just telling you the scam that he set up to get your money. And to make you feel secure in that. And since everybody is doing it, Muslims are scared not to do it. Or most people, even if they're not Muslim, are scared not to do it. 
So uh, we are, and as the Sheikh says here, we are in a state of ignorance. The ignorance is that of the buyer, the seller, or both. Does that answer your question? No, I'm sick. It's clear. And just to end that, my deen, my mind, my wealth. Here we're talking about one of the maqasas of the sharia is to preserve my wealth. And preserving it is not wasting it, not allowing myself to get ripped off. And that's the angle we're talking about here. You know, if someone is ripping you off and taking advantage of you, you do not have to take part in that. And you can go to a cheaper alternative that does not rip you off. And if the, the cheaper alternative, if two of the ways is haram, okay, then, hey, you're, you're allowed to take the lesser of the two evils. And the lesser of the two evils in preserving my wealth is that which would allow me the more dignity in the spending of my wealth. Okay? Um, I'm not going to allow a Muslim to drag me financially, just as much I'm not going to allow a Kafir to drag me. And if the Kafir is going to drag me less, then I am allowed to go to the Kafir. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. The same rule is applied with my life. Why is it allowed for the Prophet ﷺ to tell people to go to another Kafir land like Darul Hijratay, which is Ethiopia, today's modern day Ethiopia. Back in then it was called Habasha. To go live with a Kafir king because he was just. He was more just in the land that they were living in. And so you find Muslims still to this day making hijrah and running from Muslim majority lands to lands where they are Muslim minorities. Why? Because they are not being oppressed as much or at least they don't see it yet. Okay. As they are in those lands where the majority is Muslim. They're not obliged to be loyal to a land that is not loyal to them. They're not obliged to purchase from Muslims when the Muslims are taking as much financial or more financial advantage of them than the Catholic. And this is a sad state of affairs. And this is why 20 years, no, 25 or 30 years ago, the Hanafi Madhab, the, the board of Hanafi scholars that advises the people in the West, in Britain, in Canada, and in the United States, allow those Hanafis to buy homes using riba. And they implemented a very good policy. The policy would be that they would they advise their people to connect with 10 other families, not 10 other, nine other families. And whoever took a rib alone for a home in a better neighborhood, all 10 of those families would work together to pay off the loan in the fastest amount of time possible until all 10 homes were paid for. So that became the lesser of the two evils. And they used the same formula when they were buying properties to build Masajid in the late 80s and the 90s. They were saying, yes, we're buying these, these, these properties to build a masjid on. Yes, we bought it on riba. Hey, everybody in the community, let us hurry up and pay off the loan. And they would even ask other communities to help them to pay off the loan so they could finally own the property. 
The problem with the revert Muslims and now this next generation of Muslims born in the West is the division, the personal division and the, the, the disgusting, the disgust that they have for one another that they refuse to unite in any personal way because there's no trust between each other. So everybody is just doing his own thing with his own little bitty family and his two goats. Okay? And this is why we are under more oppression because the wolf gets the sheep that's the furthest away from the herd. I hope that makes clear the situation we're facing today. And um, I would like to say also in those those years ago, I was against the fatwa that the Hanafi people put out, Shuyuk Fukaha put out. But over the years, I've seen the correctness of their view. And because they were saying, hey, we initially understood it, that they were being racist towards the black people in America and the Latinos. Oh, you don't want to live in our neighborhoods. And they would respond, no, we don't want to live in those neighborhoods. And we say, why? We says, because in those neighborhoods, it is more violent. Our wives are not safe. Our children grow up with bad habits and start to, you know, imitate the low lives in society. At least in the communities that we live in, we can make it a predominantly uh, desi community with, with our own battles. And we didn't believe that they would do it. We thought that they were just trying to get around white people as we thought they were glorifying the white people. But they have shown to be true to their word. They did move in areas that were on the edge of white people neighborhoods, but they took over those neighborhoods. And they did make them predominantly Desi neighborhoods. And they were not affected by the white people's culture. They maintained their own cultural identity, even in the practice of their Islam. And so they have been proven true to their objective, which they stated, has been proven true with their action. And so we have to call it what it is. Alhamdulillah. Are there any other questions or comments? Okay, if there's none, then I'd like to say Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik ashadu an la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruku wa atubu alaykum wa jazakumullah khairan for you guys' participation. It's on you to close it. It's the Tyler Boyd. No. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh.